I want to start by just showing you a picture that Dan shared a couple of weeks ago. A picture here of a diamond. It is uh, the world's largest colorless diamond to be sold, somewhere around $20 million. And whenever you tend to see a diamond or a diamond is displayed, it's displayed on a black surface, something like velvet. And why? Well, because the brilliance of the diamond is then more clearly seen. Its beauty, its color, its brilliance, its glory and splendor are better displayed on a black surface. And this is what's happening between last week in verses 9 through 20 and verses 21 through 31 this week. Last week, the black cloth, the darkness, our sin, the corruption that is in our heart. This week, the, glory, the diamond, the glorious news of the gospel shining brightly on a backdrop, backdrop of our sin. Last week, Paul answered the question, what kind of people are we apart from Christ? Or what is the human condition apart from Jesus? And he tells us in verse 9 that we are all under sin, that both Jews and Greeks are charged, that we are both all under sin. Under sin was the idea that we're under the power and the control of sin. The sin is like a slave master over us, controlling our lives, that in fact sin lives inside of us, that we are people who are totally depraved and radically corrupt. And Paul demonstrated that uh, using the Old Testament in verses 10 through 18 last week, looking from the head to our feet, it, seeing just how radically corrupt we are internally and externally. That no one does good, Paul says, no one seeks after God. That our, our lips, our mouths are like viper's venom. That we are radically corrupt by sin and as a result, there is no one righteous. No one stands in a position before God who is innocent. Everyone is unrighteous. And this is not only Paul's charge against humanity, but more importantly, it's God's charge against humanity. That the whole world then has become subject to God's judgment. But while divine justice demands the condemnation of humanity, divine love wants to reach out to the guilty human race, to us. That God wants a relationship with us. But in order for us to be reconciled to him, to be in relationship with him, we must be declared righteous. What does that mean? What does it mean to be declared righteous? What's speaking to our legal standing or position before God. To be righteous before God is to be declared innocent of sin and condemnation. That you are justified. You are made right that you are forgiven of sin, that there's no longer a penalty that you must pay for your sin. And so if God wants us to be in relationship with him, but to do so demands that we become righteous like him, then the question is, how is the radically corrupt sinner made righteous before a holy God? How is the radically corrupt sinner, us, how are we made righteous before a holy God? Well, there are three elements that Paul uh, introduces here this morning. The first element is this, apart from the law. When we think about how do we become righteous, we become righteous apart from the law. Paul says in verse 21, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed. But now signifies a change. Uh, we are dead in sin, absolutely corrupt and unrighteous, but now there's a way for us to be righteous. But now means there is hope. But to be clear, this hope and this righteousness happens apart from the law. And what does, mean, what does Paul mean by apart from the law? Well, he means that you become righteous without keeping the law. You can become righteous without keeping the law, without keeping the commands and the demands of the law. Meaning righteousness is not based on human obedience to the works of the law. In fact, no one can become righteous by virtue of his or her own goodness. Nobody. In fact, Paul tells us in verse 20 what the law does. 
Last week we looked at this briefly, but verse 20 says, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law. Why? Why is no one declared righteous or innocent? Why is no one standing in a place of justification before God by, by the works of the law, by keeping the law? Because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. In other words, what does the law do? What does God's law do? The Ten Commandments, if you will. What do they do? Well, they just expose what is true about us, that we are sinners, that we have committed sin against God, that we have not perfectly kept God's law as God has commanded us to do. We, therefore, are unrighteous. And so righteousness doesn't come through us trying harder. It doesn't come by us doing more good. It doesn't come by going to church or taking communion or being baptized or giving more money or doing a myriad of a number of other good things. Your deeds can't change your legal standing or position before God. My deeds cannot change my standing before God. Our deeds can't change the position that we are in before God any more than putting on a red cape and blue spandex suit can make you fly. You think about Superman, watching Superman as a kid, and many kids, they want to dress up like Superman, and they think if I put on the suit and the cape and I jump into the air, what's going to happen? I'm going to fly. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't work. Why? Well, because Superman doesn't fly because he has a red cape or a blue suit on. It's in his nature, and what's in your nature and my nature is sin. And your good works, my good works, can't fix, won't fix that problem of sin. It doesn't erase the sin that you and I have committed before God. Obtaining God's righteousness is no way based on human achievement or on anything that man can do in his or her own power. And so Paul says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, attested by the law and the prophets. Before he tells us the way people can receive God's righteousness, Paul declares the not It is not only apart from the law, but it is also divinely revealed, for it was witnessed by the law and the prophets, those in the Old Testament. The Old Testament itself witnesses to this. Not only do the law and the prophets proclaim God's perfect righteousness, but they affirm what Paul has just stated, that without exception, men are unable to achieve the righteousness in their own way or in their own power. See, the law and the prophets did not show, how men, show men how to achieve their own righteousness, but it pointed them to one who could, that could make them righteous. And so how, how do you and I become righteous like God? How do we meet this standard of perfection? How are we declared innocent, no longer guilty, worthy of the punishment for sin? Well, this brings up element two, which is through faith in Christ. Through faith in Christ. And to those of us here, this should be to no surprise to us. Obviously, it is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The righteousness of God, verse 22, is through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. What is faith? Well, faith is to believe in something, to trust in something, to have confidence in something. In other words, there is an object in which you are placing your faith in, in which you are believing in or have confidence in. For the Jewish person that Paul is addressing, the object was their obedience. Obedience to the law. The object of their faith, if you will, was who they were. That they were Jews. That they were, uh, had a covenant made, with, made before them or made to them with God, by God. That it was through their own accomplishments, their own righteous behavior, if you will. But Paul has already made it clear that that law, that the law does not make someone righteous. It doesn't provide righteousness. It just declares a person to be 
unrighteous. So what is the object that faith must be in to receive righteousness? Well, Paul says it's in Christ. That righteousness receiving faith has one object and one object alone, Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus. This means that the object of belief, not simply belief itself, is the crucial issue. It's not just simply about believing, but it's about what you believe in, what your faith is in. And like I said a moment ago, you may believe that you can put on a red cape and a blue spandex suit and you will fly. You really believe that. So you put that suit on and you think, if I put that cape on, that suit on, I can really take off in there and I can fly from here into Florida. And so you put that suit on, get that cape on, and you jump up in the air. And what happens? Nothing. You fall to the ground. Why? Even though you believe, you believed with all of your heart you could fly. Why? Because the object of your faith has no ability to make you fly. It can't do it. But likewise, if you believe that a jet, commercial jet, will get you from here to Florida, and so you board that jet, then your faith will accomplish what it promises. Why? Because the object in which your faith is in has the ability to fly you from here to there. That the object of your faith matters. If your object, the object of your faith is in yourself and in doing, uh, in, 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 in doing works of the law or doing good things, if it's in accomplishing righteousness through what you do, Paul says that object is worthless. It cannot give you righteousness. See, the only object in which can provide you righteousness, in which faith is to be in to receive righteousness, is Christ. Faith, then, doesn't save you. Many people think if I just have faith, that faith alone saves. Faith does not save. Even faith in God does not save. James tells us the demons believed in God and they shuddered, but they weren't saved because they simply believed in God. That not even faith in God saves. The only thing that can cause someone to become righteous, the only way you can receive the perfect saving righteousness of God is through faith in the one who is righteous, Christ. By faith alone, in Christ alone, sola fide, solus Christus, in faith alone, in, by faith alone, in Christ alone, which means all other religions, all other faiths, all other beliefs will fail you. They will fail to give you the righteousness that you need. There is one way to God, one way to obtain the righteousness of God, and that is through the righteous Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, what does it mean to have faith in Christ? Or in other words, how does Christ make us righteous? What about Christ is our confidence actually in? Is it just simply believing that Jesus existed? That he was a guy who lived some 2,000 years ago, wandered around, taught a lot of good things, said a lot of good things, did a lot of good things? Is it simply just believing that Jesus existed? Well, no, it's more specific than that, which is element three. It's through Christ's work on the cross. That faith must be in Christ's work on the cross. That it's not just simply believing in Jesus, but in what Jesus did, who he is and what he did. In verse 24, Paul says, they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word justified, it's the same word as righteousness. It's the same Greek, uh, root Greek word. It means the same thing, that to be justified means to declare the righteousness of something or someone. 
And for God to say that a person is justified, then is for God to declare that all the demands of the law are met, they are fulfilled. Do you stand before God righteous, innocent? How? Well, Paul says they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word redemption is an important word. Redemption takes us back to Israel, the Old Testament, and to their society. Uh, Their society was an agricultural society, and it didn't take much to get into debt. In fact, to get into, or get, getting into debt, you'd oftentimes then, to pay off your debt, you would have to sell yourself into slavery. You would become a slave to the person in whom you owned the debt to in order to pay off your debt. So your whole life would potentially be required of you to get out of debt. In God's law, though, he made a provision in the law called for a kinsman redeemer. And a kinsman redeemer would then would buy someone out of their debt. That is out of their slavery. So somebody is in debt. They put themselves into slavery of that person to pay off their debt, working off their debt. But someone could come, a kinsman redeemer, and they could purchase that person's freedom. They would purchase that person's freedom by paying the debt that that person owed. Thus they would be set free from the slavery they were in. And what Paul says is this is what Jesus has done. That Jesus has justified us freely by his grace through redemption. That he has redeemed us. Meaning what? Well, he has paid our debt. What is the debt that we owe for the sin that we have committed? Death. And Jesus, through his death on the cross, through the shedding of his blood, has redeemed us. He has brought us out of captivity, out from under the enslavement to sin. Remember, Paul says you're under the power of sin. It's like a slave master who rules over you. How do you get free from that sin? How, do you, how are you freed from the power of sin that has ruled and reigned over your life? Well, through Christ. See, Christ, he paid the price for your debt, the ransom price, through the shedding of his blood. As Jesus says in Mark 10, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. That Jesus did not come on earth to be pampered, to be served. But he came to serve all of humanity. And how did he serve humanity? By giving his life. By becoming, by paying the ransom price. The price to set us free from our enslavement to sin. And that price, his life. Then Paul uses another term in explaining our justification through Christ's work on the cross. And he describes it in verse 25. He says, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood. This word or phrase, mercy seat, is translated a variety of ways depending on the uh, translation you're using. It could be propitiation. It could be sacrifice of atonement. It could be mercy seat like it is here. And the mercy seat is referring to the golden lid of the ark within the temple's inner sanctuary. So in the temple's inner sanctuary was the Ark of the Covenant. Here's a picture of the Ark. And the mercy seat is the lid that is on top. And that would sit in the inner part of the temple. This is where God would dwell. And once a year, the high priest would enter into that room on the day called the Day of Atonement. And the high priest, he would enter into this room with blood. With blood from a bowl. 
that was sacrificed prior to coming in. And he would take the blood of the bowl that was sacrificed and he'd sprinkle this blood seven times on the mercy seat. Why? Well, because without the shedding of blood, sin cannot be forgiven. See, the only way for sin to be atoned for, to be paid for, for God's wrath to be satisfied was for the shedding of blood. So God created the sacrificial system that the innocent would die for the guilty. In this case, the bull would die for the guilty, for the human. That blood then was sprinkled on the mercy seat as an act, as a payment for the sin of the people of God. And in doing so, it would turn away the wrath of God. See, the ark, in the ark of the covenant were a number of things. One was it contained the law of the Ten Commandments. In this ceremony, if you will, this day of atonement when the priest would go in, it portrayed the fact that a broken law stood between a holy God and people. That this broken law, this law that we could not keep, it stood between a holy God and people. We could not, we're not perfect in our own right, and we can't become perfect in our own right, but through the shedding of blood, sin can be atoned for. God's wrath can be satisfied. That through the shedding of blood, this place of judgment became this place of reconciliation, a place of mercy. But it was temporary. It wasn't permanent. As you probably know, the sacrificial system was not a permanent thing. Every year, this day of atonement would take place. Every year, this bull would be sacrificed. The, the, the mercy seat would be sprinkled with blood time and time and time again because it was not a permanent sacrifice. It did not permanently remove sin pay for sin, satisfy God's wrath. Rather, the sacrifice, the day of atonement, sacrificial system was pointing to a greater and more permanent sacrifice, Christ. Peter tells us, 1 Peter 1, he says, for you know that you were redeemed from your empty way of life, inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb, Jesus. Jesus who knew no sin, he became sin. Jesus who is the unblemished and spotless lamb, who is God who became man and proved that he is God, proved that he is perfect by perfectly obeying his father internally and externally, he kept the law. Paul tells us then, that Jesus, God, he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. See, when Jesus died, when he was on the cross 2,000 years ago, his blood being shed, it was not because of crimes he had committed against the Roman government. It was not because of crimes he had committed against God. He was dying and shedding his blood because of the crimes we committed against God. See, there's only one way for man to be made righteous before God, that is through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. That he made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God, Jesus who is God, who becomes flesh, is righteous. And what happens when someone believes upon the death of Jesus, when they trust in Jesus' work on the cross, that when he died, he was paying the price for sin that he rose three days later proving that he conquered death and defeating sin. When someone believes, has faith in the work of Christ, something miraculous happens is the righteousness of God 
is transferred to them. The righteousness of Christ is given to them. See, Jesus takes our sin. All the wrong that we've committed against God. The lying, the cheating, the stealing, the abusing, the hating, the slandering, the lusting, the immorality, whatever it is, he's taken all of that. That when a person looks to Christ with faith, that Jesus takes all of their unrighteousness, all of their guilt, all of their sin, and the punishment they deserve, death, and he gives them his righteousness, his right standing before God. See, you and I become righteous. We become right in the sight of God. That means we are no longer guilty and condemned before God through faith in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, through the sacrificial death of Jesus. He is our mercy seat. That in him we find mercy, not judgment, because he took judgment for us. He died in our place. That all that we are and have becomes Christ, and all that he is and has done becomes ours. The Father justifies his people through the work of his Son. And friends, this is great news. It is great news that there is a way for us to be made right with God, and it is through faith in the sacrificial death of the Lord Jesus Christ. That when you believe, when you believe what is given to you, what is transferred to you, is the righteousness of God. You are declared innocent, guilt-free before a holy God. This you are welcomed into relationship with God. And this righteousness, the righteousness of God, Paul says in verse 24, is a gift. They are freely justified by his grace. This word freely, it can be translated the word gift. It's a free gift. And Christmas is you know, right around the corner, which means we give and receive gifts. It's kind of that fun time of year. And by definition, a gift is something given freely, meaning it's something that you have not earned. It's unmerited by the person receiving it. If you earned it, it would not be a gift. And that is what justification in Christ is. It's a gift, freely given. It's not something that you earn, and certainly not something that you and I deserve. It's only because of the grace of God, that the grace of God, he has freely gifted us his righteousness. Now, this doesn't mean it didn't cost God anything. Free here should not be like, well, it didn't, there's no cost. You know, it's free. God didn't have to do anything. You know, there's, there's no expense. No, no, no. Like any gift, there is a cost somewhere. And the gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation, costs God immensely. It cost him his one and only son. It didn't cost him money. It didn't cost him gold or silver, Peter says. It cost him his one and only son. And so why? Why would he give us such a costly gift? Why would he give us who have rejected him? Paul says, you don't even seek after God. You don't even care about God. The only reason we seek God is because of God to begin with. 
And the only reason we become righteous like God is because of God. But it costs him so much. It costs him his one and only son. But why would he do that then? Why would he give his one and only son? Well, the same reason parents give gifts to their kids at Christmas. Or you give gifts to those in your family, your friends. Now, I was out at uh, driving to the mall yesterday going Christmas shopping. <clears throat> I say it's a joyful time of the year. I, I don't know about that. When I drive to the mall <clears throat> and I'm getting out there and I look at all the traffic, I'm like, Lord, help me. And I told my wife, I said, we are never going to find a parking spot. And I drove up like right by Shields and all of a sudden this car is backing out like, right in the front. And I'm like, there is a God. Like, <laughs> I made it. Um, <clears throat> the little things in life, right, that you appreciate. Why? Do we give gifts to our kids, friends, whoever, family? Because we love them. We love them. And that's not always perfectly the case for us, but it is so with God. God's motives are pure and righteous. That God's gift is a gift given because he loves. 1 John 4.10, John writes, love consists in this, not that we loved God. So important. The love that God shows to us is not given to us because we first love God. God's not responding to our love to him. He's not responding to some kindness that we have given to him. No, 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 quite the opposite. Love consists in this, not that we love God, not that we wanted anything to do with God, as Paul made clear last week, but that he loved us. And how did he love us? He sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins, to be the payment for your and my sin, to die the death that we deserve, to pay the penalty of being separated from God, forsaken by the Father. I mean, think about that reality that Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why have you forsaken me? That Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin. That Jesus became the one who was abandoned. That Jesus was forsaken so that you and I would not be. And that in Jesus, he is the atoning sacrifice for our sin, which means there is nothing left to pay for. There is no sin left to be paid for. No sin that you have committed or will commit that you committed long ago that was really bad and you still remember and you still grieve over and you still tend to think you might need to do something about, there is no sin. There's nothing left to pay for. Jesus has paid it all. He has paid for all of our sin. <clears throat> His sacrifice is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not a or an atoning, atoning sacrifice. It is the, it is the atoning sacrifice for our sin. <clears throat> and out of love, out of love for us, God sent his one and only son so that you and I might be declared righteous before God. Now, not only did Jesus' death make us righteous, but his death demonstrates that God himself is righteous. This is important. Oftentimes we think about 
Jesus' death making us righteous, and we should. Clearly, that's a big part of what Paul's point is, but it also, his death also demonstrates that God is righteous, meaning God maintained his righteousness. He is just through the sacrificial death of Jesus. Why do I say this? Well, because what Paul writes in verses 25 and 26, God presented him as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. In the past, God did not pour out his full wrath on mankind for their sin. He says it in verse 25, because in his restraint, God passed over sins previously committed. And some might read that and then question, God, are you really righteous? Are you really just to pass over sin? How can you be just or righteous to pass over sin? Well, in Jesus' death, he demonstrated his wrath against sin. It is here in Jesus' death that God found a way to forgive us and yet maintain his moral integrity, his righteousness. He forgave us without condoning our sin. See, God being a just judge, it demands that God punish sin. God must punish sin. In fact, to be a loving judge, God must punish sin. So how is God loving and just? How does he demonstrate his righteousness, the fact that he is a just God by directing toward himself in the person of Christ the full weight of wrath that you and I deserve? That when he poured out his punishment, his wrath upon Christ, he justly punished sin and proved that he is just. He is righteous because in the death of Christ, he punished sin. That God's holy character is not compromised. And so the cross, the cross is the place where the judge actually takes the judgment. Let me just think about that for a minute. The cross is the place where the judge, God, actually takes on the judgment. That God does not then set aside his justice. Rather, he turns his justice onto himself. He turns it onto himself. And see, God sacrificed Christ in our place out of love for us to make us righteous, but God also did so to demonstrate that he is righteous, that he is just, which means the cross is where God's justice and love, they meet. They come together. It's where the, ju the, the justice of God and the love of God intersect. Tim Keller, he writes, the wonder of the cross is that in the very same stroke, it satisfies both the love of God and the justice of God. At the very same moment, it shows us that God is both the judge who cares enough about his world to set standards and hold us accountable to them, and the justifier who has done everything necessary to forgive and restore us. The cross is where gloriously and liberatingly we see that he is just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus at the cross. It's where the justice of God and the love of God meet. It's where we are justified. So what should we do? In closing, one application is this. 
don't boast in yourself, believe in Christ. Don't boast in yourself, believe in Christ. This is where Paul goes in verse 27. Where then is boasting? Where then is boasting? To boast is to take pride in something, right? To have confidence in something. And what you boast in, it gives you confidence in life. It gives you confidence to kind of face what's in front of you. But with the gospel, with becoming righteous, with salvation, where then is boasting? Remember, who's Paul's audience here? Well, it's, it's in part the Jewish person. The person who, who looks at themselves and says, I am a Jew. I come from uh, a, the family that has been uh, made a covenant, that God has made a covenant with. I have, we have the law of God. They look to themselves and the keeping of the law to, to give them righteousness. And Paul says, wait, wait, where is boasting then? He says, it's excluded. There's no room for it, in other words. There's no room for any person to boast. Nobody has the ability to boast. To, in other words, to say that their confidence comes from what they have done in order to obtain the righteousness that is needed to enter into relationship with God. Why? Well, Paul says, for we have concluded, in verse 28, we conclude that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Again, he, just, he is railing home this point because so often where we go to justify ourselves before God is to what we have done or who we are, our achievements and our accomplishments. And nobody understands this in one sense better than Paul. Philippians chapter three, Paul is writing and he's talking to these people, these Pharisees, those who, who have confidence in their flesh. They think they can obtain righteousness through what they do. And he says in verse four, if anyone else thinks he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, reason to boast in their own accomplishments, in who they are, I have more. Paul says, listen, I have far more reason to boast in my flesh than anybody. Circumcised in the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding righteousness, that is in the law, blameless, Paul says, blameless. When it comes to keeping the law, I am blameless. Paul says, I have the right pedigree. I have the right racial background. I have all the professional and educational achievements. I am a Pharisee. I am, have religion. I have morality. I have every reason to boast in myself. That in myself, I can obtain righteousness, the right standing that is needed to enter into relationship with God. But what does Paul say about all this? Verse seven, but everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. Everything that was a gain to me, everything that I saw as reason to boast in, mis in myself, to have confidence in me that I could become righteous, that I was righteous in what I did, I have considered a loss. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ. I've considered it a loss. Everything that was a gain to me is a loss. Paul says, 
none of it matters. None of it. Nothing that I've done, who I am, how good or not I have been, being a Pharisee, being of the tribe of Benjamin, a, a, a Jew by birth, I am a part of the covenant people of God, he says. It doesn't matter. See, boasting and believing are opposites. You can't do both. You can't have both. Paul says you, you can't boast in yourself and believe in Christ. No, no, it's either you boast in yourself or you believe upon Christ. You can't boast in your accomplishments and believe in Jesus. That what you need, all you need, the only thing that can save you is Christ. Only faith in Christ can make you righteous. As Paul says in verse 22, the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ. To who? To all who believe. To all. It's not to people from the, a right background or a right family or to a right uh, social or economic class. Who, who is this righteousness available to? All who believe. There is no distinction. No one becomes righteous because of who they are or what they've done. Only, we can only become righteous because of who Christ is and what he has done. For we have all sinned, Paul says, and we all fall short of the glory of God. And what we need more than anything else, is Christ. And so here's a question to think about. Is have you repented and trusted in Jesus' work on the cross? Is he the object of your faith? You have faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody believes in something, has confidence in something. Is your faith in Christ and what he has done? Is it trusting in the sacrificial death of Jesus? Martin Lloyd-Jones sums up faith by saying this, the man who has faith is the man who is no longer looking at himself and no longer looking to himself. He no longer looks at anything he once was and he does not look at what he is now. He does not look at what he hopes to be. He looks entirely to the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and he rests on that alone. Where does your hope rest? Is it in the work of Christ? If it's not, I would encourage you. I would encourage you to turn to Jesus, to trust, to put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ, his sacrificial death on the cross. Let's pray. Father, we...